Okay, so let's get started here. Just give me Okay, so good afternoon, and today we're going to be learning about, as we know, today is the second Torah reading of the book of Deuteronomy, Parshas Ve'ezchanan. However, as we also know, this Shabbos is called Shabbos Nachamu, which means the Shabbos of consoling, because it begins with the Haftorah of this week, where Isaiah uses the terminology of consoling, comforting the Jewish people on the destruction of the Temple. When we talk about life, in general, life gives, throws us many different uh, angles and challenges, good things, bad things, or if you want to call them bad things, as we'll soon see. And we look at different things that happen in life, different challenges or different uh, tragedies, or if you want to call it difficulties that happen in life, which sometimes cause us to be despondent, upset. And our response is sometimes questionable if it's correct or not. One of the most hurtful, if we can call it, things which really puts us down is when we see something which is trampled upon that is holy and sacred. Something which is meant to be godly, pure, and is completely destroyed. And seemingly, one asks, where's God in the picture, so to speak? When we see that the secular movements, whether it's from the external or the internal, try to be able to destroy those that, things that are holy. If we look back to the time of the Holy Temple, when the Holy Temple was destroyed, or even today when secularism becomes something which becomes an overpowering force that does not allow any type of spirituality or godliness to reign through, and all of a sudden we ask, how does such a desecration of God's name happen? How does God allow the Torah, godliness, God's name, to be trampled in such a terrible way. And this is not only when we look at it from a personal perspective in our own life when we have different challenges and we ask ourselves, you know, I'm trying to do the right thing, I'm trying to become more spiritual, I'm trying to become holier, I'm trying to do more mitzvot, and for some reason I'm finding only setbacks in my life. Or even in the general populace, when we look at the world at large, how secular and anti-religious it's become, or anti-God it's become. And we ask, what is this, this desecration of godliness? And we can sometimes have this despondency and upset and a lower level of morale to stand up for what is right because seemingly if God allows his own values to be trampled upon, doesn't God care? How would that be allowed? You know, we talk to different people who gone through different transitions in their life. And many people look to do more, connect more, and they sometimes ask themselves, you know, I'm doing so much more. I'm starting to observe Shabbat. I'm starting to try to keep a proper lifestyle according to Torah mitzvahs. And for some reason, I don't see the dots connecting. I don't see more prosperity in my life. It seems like that I'm only faced with more challenges. And sometimes we lose faith. We become despondent, depressed, upset. And turn to God and say, I'm trying to connect to you. Why are you throwing somebody, so many challenges in my way? Which brings us back to yesterday, which we observed and commemorated the destruction of the Holy Temple. The two Holy Temples that were destroyed in Jerusalem. The amount of Jews and bloodshed that came because of the destruction of the Holy Temple. And we ask the question, why did God have to make it so tragic? Why did he have to destroy the holy temples? Was that the only way he could have shown the Jewish people a lesson? Why did so many Jewish people have to be get killed? Why throughout the ages were Jews persecuted so much? What's the need for this destruction? Well, we don't know God's ways. And we'll never understand why God does certain things. But let's look a little bit into the comforting words and the consolation that the great prophet Isaiah, and following him, Rabbi Akiva, used during their times. These two individuals, Isaiah the prophet and Rabbi Akiva, 
were two people who saw firsthand destruction in their life. Isaiah, who prophesied the destruction of the first temple, though he didn't see it, but he knew it was about to come. And Rabbi Akiva, who lived through the destruction, the exile of the second temple, the terrible atrocities that occurred by the Romans, what they've done to the Jewish people, the thousands of people that were killed in Betar, the thousands of people that were killed in Jerusalem. He lived through the entire Roman rule to the extent that he himself was killed eventually by the Romans. Both of these individuals were the consolers of the Jewish people, the ones who brought comfort to the Jewish people. Rabbi Isaiah the prophet in this week's Haftorah, the Haftorah is known as Shabbos Nachamu, the Shabbos of comforting. And he begins his prophecy by saying, Comfortee, comfortee, my Jewish people, the nation of God. A double translation, a, a double terminology of comfort. Rabbi Akiva, the same thing also, the sages turned to him and used the terminology and said, Akiva nichantonu, Akiva nichantonu, Akiva, you have comforted us, Akiva, you have consoled us. And over here we're going to look at four different questions. More generally, two, I should say. Number one is what's this comforting all about? What is this consolation? How are they consoling the Jewish people when these tragic events happen to them? And number two, why did both of them, Isaiah, and then 500 years later, more than 500 years later, Rabbi Akiva used the same terminology, or the sages turned to Rabbi Akiva and say, Akiva, you have comforted us. Akiva, you have comforted us. Why the double terminology of comfort? When we talk about comforting and consoling a person, generally we find the concept of comforting and consoling when a person loses a loved one. We are given the mitzvah of nichum avelim, of, comfort, of comforting and consoling a person who is mourning. And we know that when it comes to, comfort, uh, to consoling a person who lost a loved one, we're not just there telling them Oh, yes, I know what you're going through. In fact, that's probably the worst thing to say. But we're not just there to give them a shoulder to lean on. But the word comfort means to give them what they're missing. To return to them, so to speak, in the metaphorical, as we know we can't give it in a realistic way, but to bring them back to the place where they were before they lost their loved one. To try to give them something which brings their heart and completes their heart and makes it whole something that the one, the mourner, and the one who's in pain will actually listen to and take it to heart. Think about it. The first person in Jewish history that we cannot find that was comforting somebody on their loss in their life was Aaron. Aaron, when he lost his sons. And he lost his sons at a very young age. Not only did he lose his sons at a very young age, but he also lost his sons on the day that he was inaugurated to be the Kohen Gadol. And all of a sudden, in the hype of everything, his two sons are taken away from him. Moshe comes along and says, you know, that those two sons of yours really took our place. In this great holy moment, there was really something, somebody had to go. And your two sons, Bikrova they were the holiest ones, so God took them. What was Moshe telling Aaron? Your son's death was not for no reason, was not for naught. There was a purpose, there was a reason. Lives were saved because of your children. That's what brought comfort. And Aram was quiet. He was able to accept that as a consolation. We find that also in the Medrash, the commentator talks about it, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaki, one of the great Talmudic commentators, one of the people who saved the Torah from being destroyed, brought the Torah to Yavna during the destruction of the Holy Temple. That is, when his son passed away, his students came to comfort him. His first student, Rabbi Eliezer, came in and said, you know, Adam, the first human being, also lost a child. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakeh says, are you trying to comfort me? You're just making things worse. You're saying, not only did I lose a child, but you remind me that Adam also lost a child. How does that come from? Then the next fellow came in, Rabbi Yeshua came in, and said, you know, I understand you lost a child, but Job lost, 
sons and daughters lost many children. Rabbi Yochanan and Zakeh looks at him and says, not only do you recognize my suffering, but you're reminding me that Job also lost suffering. What is, how is that helping me? What we see clearly is to tell a person who is suffering, who lost somebody in their life, to say, oh, I know what you're going through because this person did it. Doesn't comfort a person. Rabbi Lazar ben Aruch came in and he told Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, I have a metaphor for you. Imagine there's a person, a king, who gives an individual something to watch. And he says, please protect this, take care of it, watch it for me. And every single day this person cries and says, Oy, I gotta watch this thing. Make sure it's perfect, that I return it the way I got it, that it doesn't get destroyed. I hope that I am able to return this item that the king gave to me in the same way I got it. So too, Rabbi Lazar ben Arach turns to his teacher, Rabbi Yochanan Mazakai. He says, Rebbe, God gave you a gift to watch. He asked you to watch it, to protect it, to shield it, and make sure it's taken care of. And today he came to collect that gift that he gave you. He gave you a child, and he said, study with the Torah, teach it good deeds. And you took this child, educated it, gave it your best, made sure that it would go out of this world with the best gifts that it should have. You gave back your gift the way you got it, complete and wholesome, without any blemishes. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakeh turned to his student and said, Rabbi Lazar, you have comforted me the way people should comfort people. What was the difference between the first three students and the last student and what they said? The first few students said, well, listen, this is the way in the world. God gives, God takes. God gave you, tough luck, you're done. There are people before you that lost children, and so did you. That's not comforting. But when we told them that there was a purpose, there was a reason, this is not a loss, but it's just returning a lost item you've invested, and now God took the investment back, that's a consolation. When you see that you did something and it brought some type of purpose. There's an amazing story they say about a rabbi by the name of Rabbi Yisrael Gustman. He was from the great geniuses and scholars and from the great rabbis in the previous generation. He was an unbelievable scholar that at 21 years old, he was already appointed as a judge in the city of the courts, in the rabbinical court in Vilna, which the great rabbi, Chaim Oizer of Gordensky, was the rabbi. He was one of the last of the rabbis of Vilna after the Holocaust. For some years, he was even the Rosh Yeshiva. He was the lead the Yeshiva in Eastern Parkway in 770. Afterwards, he went up to the land of Israel, made Aliyah, and opened up a Yeshiva by the name of Netzach Yisroel. And Rabbi Gustman was known amongst a lot of Israeli intellectuals, uh, theologians of his time, professors, military, people that he knew very well, the academy, people of the academy, you know, the, academic, uh, you know, the academics of his time he was very popular. He would discuss with them and so on. And one of the people that he was very close with was a, a professor by the name of Yisrael Uman. This, was, this uh, professor, Yisrael Uman, eventually won the Nobel Prize in finance. Um, and three years, I'm sorry, three days after the war of Shalom Galil, which was in uh, 1982, the son of this professor was killed in the war, Shlomo. His name was Shlomo in Lebanon. Rabbi Grusman, who was very close with the family, went to the funeral all the way up to Mount Herzl. And after the funeral, he went to, to do Nichum Avelum, to pay a shiva call and comfort the mourners, his good friend, the professor Yisrael Uman. And as he walks into the home, he embraces Yisrael Uman, and he tells him as follows. He says, let me tell you. When I was running away from the Holocaust in Germany, and we were running, the Nazis came, and were taking us all, loading us up on trains, on wagon cars. 
and they took my little son, Merca, from my hands, threw him into a truck, and that was the last we saw of him. We cried, we yelled, there's nothing we can do. He says, but let me tell you, right now in heaven, what's going on is they're about to pray Mincha. And my America and your Shlomo are both up there. And they're there together with all the holy, righteous people from this generation. And there's all of a sudden becoming a whole discussion who should be the one to lead the congregation. America, my son, is telling your son, Shlomo, that Shlomo should be the one to lead the congregation. And America tells Shlomo, he says, you know why you should lead the congregation? We both died for the sanctification of God's name. But I died and I was killed, but nobody was saved because of me. But you were killed, and many people were saved because of you. And therefore, you deserve to lead the congregation up in heaven. Yisrael Uman takes Rabbi Gustman, gives them a hug and says, Rebbe, my rabbi, you have comforted me. You have comforted me. I see the reason, the purpose. I suffer the loss, but I see the purpose. When we look back into the story of Isaiah comforting the Jewish people, what was the comforting that Isaiah and Rabbi Akiva were saying? How can they comfort a people who are just suffering the destruction of the Holy Temple? The holiest place on earth went up in flames and fires and destroyed by the Romans. The holiest ground, everything was destroyed and given into the hands of evil. What kind of comfort, what kind of consolation can you find? And why would they give this double comforting, this double consolation? If it's a comforting, say it once. And if it's not comforting, why say it twice? What's the reason for it? So let's go back a little bit where this comforting comes from. These past few weeks, the last three weeks, and in the coming up seven weeks, every week we read a special Haftorah. The first three weeks, we read a Haftorah which talks and reminds the Jewish people about the destruction of the Holy Temple. The last seven weeks, which means starting from this coming week until Rosh Hashanah, there are seven weeks which we call Shiva Benechemta, seven weeks of consolation, seven weeks of comfort, where we read seven Haftorahs, which we usually read a Haftorah which has to do with the Torah reading of the week, which has some similarity. These seven weeks we're going to read Haftorahs which talk about a vision and prophecy looking forward about the imminent redemption, looking forward to the time of the coming of Mashiach. If you look in the first three Haftorahs of last week, and the week before and the week before. Two of them are from Jeremiah. One of them are from Isaiah. And they talk about the bitter times, the terrible times, the tragic times of the destruction that may come to the Jewish people. In fact, the Talmud uses the terminology and says if a person sees Yechezkel in his dream, he should look forward to intelligence. If you see Isaiah in your dream, look forward to salvation. You see Jeremiah in your dream, Bad times are coming your way. Start worrying. In fact, the name Jeremiah means bitter because he was the one that gave prophecy about the bitter times of the Jewish people. Isaiah means salvation because he always prophesies about the future, the vision that the Jewish people may have. We always read this week's Haftorah about Nakol Shabbos Nachamu, the Shabbos of Consolation, always the Shabbos after Tishabov, because we are comforting the Jewish people after the destruction of the Holy Temple that we just commemorated yesterday that we just looked at the comfort of the terrible, tragic events that happened during Tisha B'av, the destruction of the First and Second Temple, the destruction of the Jews of Betar, the atrocities that happened to the Jewish people throughout the times, and we ask God for comfort. And God is comforting the Jewish people, reminding them there was tragic times, but there will be good times. What is Isaiah doing this week's Haftorah? After these tragic events, God comes to him and tells him, prophesies to the Jewish people words of consolation, words of comfort. And over here he uses the terminology, Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami. Isaiah says, comforty, comforty, my Jewish people. Why the double in terminology? But you'll notice something very interesting. 
Isaiah always uses this redundant type of new terminology. You'll find in other books, other prophecies, Isaiah says, Sois asis, rejoice, rejoice. Where in other places he'll say, Uri, Uri, awaken, awaken. Isaiah has this terminology, he always uses this poetic term of redundancy. So this time he says, comfort ye, comfort ye. In other places he says, awaken, awaken. In other places he says, rejoice, rejoice. Why this double duplicity? Why this redundancy? The Medrash says, because Isaiah was an individual, because he was not afraid to say the word of God, while others were rebuked and others were worried about what others might say. So God said, you are a person that stands up against the odds. You're not afraid to say what is true and right. And therefore, I will give you a duplicity, a redundancy in your prophecy. But still the question is, why the need of the redundancy? Why the need of duplicity? If it didn't work the first time, why will it work the second time? And if it works the first time, why do I need the second time? And over here, the, the Medrash explains and says the need for this duplicity because each one of these are giving us a different type of terminology. The Medrash explains and says, first of all, the comforting and the consolation that is coming. The first one is symbolic that it's comforting from above and is comforting from below. There's comforting from the people in this world and there's comforting in the world to come. There's comforting from the ones that are alive and there's comforting from the ones that have passed on. There's comforting for the people of the ten tribes who have been exiled and then there's the comforting of the people of Judea who are only later exiled. And then he continues and says that the comforting is also the same way there are two types of sorrows. The sorrow of the first temple and the sorrow of the second temple. God is comforting the Jewish people for the sorrow of the first temple and the sorrow of the second temple. So we see over here this terminology of the duplicity is because there's a double measure of comfort that's coming, whether it's below and above, from the first and second temple, from those alive and dead, from the world to come, and those the world, this world here. That's one way of looking at it. The Malbim, another commentator, gives another explanation and says that the reason why there's a duplicity is because there are two types of methods of how the redemption can come about. The redemption can come in its proper time. That means in a time that even if we do or don't deserve it, it's going to come anyway. Or we can bring about the redemption in an earlier time. So God is telling the Jewish people, I console you, I comfort you, that you can bring about the imminent redemption even before it's time. But if you don't want, I comfort you that there will be a time that Mashiach is going to come regardless. But what we see from over here is from the simple interpretation that the concept of discomforting is a duplicity because it's a redundancy in the Jewish people's comforting and letting them know that each one of these comforts is a level of giving hope and installing a type of level of confidence and conscious awareness that God is listening to the Jewish people. He will take us out of this miserable time that we're in and bring about the ultimate redemption. That was the two levels of comforting that Isaiah is telling us. But then let's take to the next story and episode that we mentioned of Rabbi Akiva, of his redundancy or the message that the rabbis told him, Akiva, you have comforted us. Akiva, you have comforted us. What's the story there? What happened? And at the end of the tractate of Makos, the Talmud tells us an interesting story. And the Talmud says as follows. Rabbi Gamaliel and Rabbi Lazar ben Azari and Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi Akiva were once walking on their way to Rome to get, try to influence the Roman emperor to be a little more kind to the Jewish people. And as they're walking, they hear the noise of the thoroughfares of Rome, of the metropolitan area, the metropolis of Rome, making all this noise and this wonderful, and how they were so successful. And they hear it from far away. And they all begin to cry. And Rabbi Akiva begins to laugh. And they ask Rabbi Akiva, why are you laughing? So he says, why are you crying? So he says, we're crying because look, these people who destroyed the Holy Temple, who serve idolatry, are sitting peacefully, successfully. Look at their wealth, look at their success, and look at the evil that they're perpetrating. Why they be rewarded to such type of why they're so successful? 
We see the house of God is burned by these people and they're lying at the success and they're so excited and they're so happy. Where's the justice? How can I not cry and see that those who have destroyed the holy temple are successful? Rabbi Akiva says that's exactly why I'm laughing. Because if the people that are so bad are getting such a reward, how much more so those who serve God and do the right thing, how much greater is their reward going to be? End of conversation. But then they continue walking. And as they continue walking, they come to another place. Another time they take a walk. And they're taking a walk in Jerusalem. And they're walking in Jerusalem and they're walking on Mount Scopus. And all of a sudden they come to Mount Scopus. And as they're walking down Mount Scopus, they come to Temple Mount. And as they come to Temple Mount, they tear their clothing. As they see foxen walking out of the place that used to be the Holy of Holies. They begin to cry. Rabbi Akiva begins to laugh. And again, the same conversation occurs. They ask Rabbi Akiva, why are you laughing? He turns to them. Why are you crying? They ask them, why am I crying? The place that the Holy Torah says, if you are not a Kohen, and you walk in that holy place, you are liable of capital punishment. Today is plowed, and foxen are coming, are roaming there. Rabbi Akiva said, that's exactly why I'm laughing. Because if the prophecy of Uriah came true, then I know the prophecy of Zechariah will come true. Because as the prophecy of Uriah says, that because of you, Zion, Zion will be plowed. And then Zechariah said, but there will come a time that young boys and girls will sit in the streets of Jerusalem with great laughter and joy. Jerusalem will be once again rebuilt. If I see this prophecy will happen, then I know this prophecy will happen. With that, the sages turned to Rabbi Akiva and they said, Akiva nichamtanu, Akiva nichamtanu. Akiva, you have comforted us. Akiva, you have comforted us. Now let's understand the story. We're talking about right after the destruction of the Second Temple. Jerusalem was conquered, destroyed by the Roman Emperor. Life for Jews at that time were dependent on the Romans. In fact, that's what these sages were doing. They were going to intercede by the Romans that they should be kinder to the Jews. And over here, the, Torah, the Talmud tells us of an episode which these episodes show us where seemingly the Jews, Torah, godliness is being trampled on. Idolatry, non-Jews, people who celebrated the destruction of the temple are glorious and successful. The greatest desecration of God's name is happening here. The great sages are going to Rome. They hear the success of Rome. Rightfully so, they are crying, why is this happening? And what does Rabbi Akiva say? Well, if this is the way God rewards those that are bad, how much more so for those that are good? What was Rabbi Akiva saying? Rabbi Akiva was actually saying, the Sefer Yakrim explains, that these evil people, they must have done something good. And for them, just doing one little good thing, God is rewarding them so well. How much more people to do a lot of it? How much in store is for them? These people, God doesn't want them to get anything in the world to come. So he's giving them all their good now. So they shouldn't get anything in the world to come. That means there is something here that they've appreciated. Something here that they're getting so that they don't get it in the world to come. But notice... Do the rabbis comment on Rabbi Akiva's translation, his interpretation of the events? They agree to disagree. No comment. They keep on walking. But then, as they come to Temple Mount and they see the fox and walk out of Holy of Holies, and Rabbi Akiva has this exchange where they saw, these are people that lived through the destruction of the temple. They saw the holiness in the temple. You can understand where they're upset while they're crying. And what happens over here? All of a sudden, Rabbi Akiva says, you're not getting the full prophecy. 
You're not truly appreciating the situation. What's going on over here? What is Rabbi Akiva's interpretation? And the morale, Rabbi Yehuda Lohi explains. And he says as follows. He says, in fact, what Rabbi Akiva was telling them was a deeper message. Not just that one prophecy is dependent on the other. But in fact, one prophecy brings about the other. What he was saying is that look at the way anything in this world happens. You don't have a seedling that grows a crop until that seedling rots in the ground. You cannot plant anything until you actually uproot the ground and plow it. You need to be able to plow the ground. You need to be able to destroy what's there in order to create something better. Rabbi Akiva over here was telling them that the rotting, the plowing, the destruction was actually part of the building. And that's why the sages responded, you have comforted us. What we see, our first eyes, our first glance, we only saw destruction. But you brought us to appreciate that this destruction was actually the demolition before the new building. When we look at the words of the Gemara, the Talmud, the Talmud tells us the names of the rabbis that went with Rabbi Akiva. Generally, the Talmud would just say Rabbi Akiva and the elders. But over here, he specifically enumerates them. And number two, over here, when we look at the story of the Talmud and the rabbis, what is it, all of a sudden, that it was because the fox came out of the place of the Holy of Holies that got them to all of a sudden be worried? They saw the destruction. That in itself wasn't enough for them. But they, the Talmud uses the terminology. They saw the fox and come out. Rabbi Akira responds about a plowed field. What's the detail in the story? And then again, why do they use the duplicity? Akiva, you have comforted us. Akiva, you have comforted us. The Rebbe, the great comforter of our generation, uses the words of Rabbi Akiva to give us a message of absolute resurgence and how we can, we can respond to the despondency and to the tragedies of any time. And he looks at it as follows. What was the problem that broke the hearts and minds of the people of, the, of Rabbi Akiva's friends? What was the issue that was bothering them? What realized what brought about the destruction of the temple? The sages of that time understood that the destruction of the temple came about because of baseless hate amongst one another. They realized that the temple was destroyed because of the sins of the people of the generation. And because of that, they knew, yes, dad punishes his children. He's disciplining us. But how much discipline do we need? We get the point. You destroy the holy temple. But how much punishing? Why does he have to continue with the punishments? Why so much of it? Not only that, you can punish the child for doing something wrong, but why do you have to extol the one that did the thing wrong as well? That means you have to punish the Jewish people for their misbehavior. But does that mean that you have to put the Romans on the pedestal? Does that mean that you have to make the Romans successful? What happened to the generation of Jewish people? What happened to the Jewish people being the chosen nation? The rabbis at that time were asking, well, this, is this Torah? Is this the God that loves the Jewish people? Is this the God that cares for the Jewish people? To be able to make such a disproportionate type of behavior? In fact, if you look a little deeper at the time, do you know what religion started at that time? Christianity came about right at the destruction of the second temple. One of the reasons why Christianity came about at the time was Christianity was arguing, if you guys are the chosen people, then why are you being so punished? That means God doesn't like you guys anymore. Maybe you've got to try something else. And over here, as they're walking by Jerusalem, again, they've known about the destruction of the temple. But when they see it as a place 
We are fox and are walking out of it. This is not only like you kill somebody, but you turn the spear in them to make sure they're really dead. Like adding insult to injury. They're asking, Almighty God, isn't this enough? How much further does this have to be? Rabbi Akiva understood quite well what was troubling the sages. So what does Rabbi Akiva first begin with? He first tries consoling them by telling them, don't even worry, yes, I know times today are bad. But boy, do we got a better future than these guys. These guys are enjoying life now. We're going to have a better time in the world to come. But as you see, the answer doesn't stick to much. The sages say, okay, we got to agree to disagree. The bottom line is we're suffering. I don't know about the world to come. We're suffering. They're happy. Doesn't make sense. But all of a sudden, they come a little further. Rabbi Akiva steps a little further and gives the explanation a little deeper. Rabbi Akiva says, no. Not only do we have a better future, not only is it going to be for us brighter later on, but right now, this desecration that you see is good as well. This terrible event that you are assuming is terrible is actually the greatest thing ever because it's the demolition before the construction. If you see a building going down, do you start crying? If you know a bigger one's coming up in its face? No. And therefore, Abiy Akiva comes along and says, you see these Romans? You see them celebrating. You see over here the holy temple that it's demolished. It's because the Romans had to do the demolition. And we should have a greater temple. The big temple. The demolition is part of the construction that's coming better. In fact, Rabbi Akiva says, Rabbi Akiva was an individual who was able to see the good in everything, if you recall. Rabbi Akiva was a person that even when he had everything destroyed in front of him, he was able to find the good in everything that he saw. But Rabbi Akiva also took it a step further. Rabbi Akiva said, the mistake that you rabbis are making, the mistake the way you're looking at things, is that you think that there are two entities, one that does good and one that does bad. And therefore now you're upset that bad is overcoming the good. And you say, hey, one second, good is supposed to be the, the, the guy on top. And now you're upset, hey, the two impulses in the world are not fighting with one another, and therefore the good is supposed to be always the one that's supposed to win, and now the bad is winning. And therefore you're all upset. And in fact, great academics, philosophers in times of past, the great Persian philosopher believed that there are two entities, God forbid, two powers, if you want to call it, in heaven. The power of light and the power of dark, the power of good, the power of evil, and that's why in many different deities and many different religions, they light a lot of fire, put in a lot of light, because light is supporting of good, and darkness is supporting of evil, and so on. What was Rabbi Akiva telling them? No, no, no. It's not two separate entities. It's one entity. It's one God. The same God who made the destruction is the God of rebuilding. The same God who gave us the building of the Holy Temple is the one that destroyed it. God essentially is good and God is forever good and whatever God does is good. But sometimes to find the good, you got to dig deep. You got to come and the only way you can find the good is by breaking yourself. By destruction, by demolition is the way you get to the true good. Sometimes in order to put up a better building, you've got to dem demolish the building before it. If you want to be able to taller the building you make, the deeper in the ground you've got to dig. Because the deeper you dig, the, where the most precious gems, the deeper in the ground they are. Rabbi Akiva was saying, Rabbi Akiva was telling them, at this point we're now starting a new era in Jewish history. We're starting an era in history where we have to dig deep to find the good that exists within every single Jew, which is above and beyond intellect. Intellect will say, what looks good is good, what looks bad is bad. Where Rabbi Akiva comes along and says that even the bad that seemingly looks bad is also good. Ayah doesn't look good, that's on the surface. You dig deep, 
you'll find that that bad is also good because God is only good. There's no two entities. Whatever happens in this world comes from Almighty God and God is the ultimate good. And the only reason why it doesn't look that way is because of your obstacle. It's because you haven't dug deep enough. It's take, for example, a guy that works out, wants to build muscle mass, wants to be strong, mighty champion. If he just does every single day the same weights, he's not going to get stronger. What does he have to do every single day to put more weights on him? And it gets harder and it gets stronger until he says, oh, I can't do this anymore. And he lifts those weights and the next day he goes for more. Because if you don't push yourself, if you're not going to challenge yourself, if you're not going to be able to find a little, dig it a little deeper, get the opposition, as what do they say? What's the best way for innovation? Desperation is the best thing for innovation. When we got to dig deep, when we're desperate, and we think there's no way out, all of a sudden we come up with the best ideas. This was Rabbi Akiva was telling them, that if we want to reach the ultimate redemption, if we want to reach the time of the coming of Moshiach, the first two temples were temporary. But if we want to get to that eternal life, that eternal holy building, that eternal temple, then we got to go dig a little deeper. we got to find it a little deeper. And even though at times it comes with the cost of the desecration of God's name, it comes with the desecration of the holy temple, but that desecration is ordered to build, ultimately on it, the greatest sanctification. Just a cute anecdote, which brings this a little bit further. When the previous Rebbe was uh, running out of Russia, I should say was expelled from Russia by the communists because he was doing too much to be able to fight them. So he continued his fight against the communists and creating uh, secret chedarim, mikvahs, shuls, and everything, an underground network of Judaism in Russia, even outside Russia. And one time he was by a, he was having dinner by one of his hosts, I think it was in Latvia or maybe in America already, and he was, you could see that on his head was someplace else. His mind was worried about the people in Russia, about the, what was going on in the world at the time. And he was very concerned about it. And he was eating the soup, and he was like playing with the soup, you know, but his mind was somewhere else. The host, who we can say was probably not the brightest one in the room, tells the previous Rebbe, if you put your, soup, your spoon a little deeper, you'll find the lakshin. You know, the lakshin of the soup sinks to the bottom. So he was telling the previous Rebbe, if you put your spoon a little deeper in the soup, he thought that the previous Rebbe was like playing and looking for the lakshin. He says, if you put the spoon a little deeper, you'll find the lakshin. The previous Rebbe looked up at him, smiled, and says, thank you. You revived me. Commentators on the side says, what do you mean revived him? You didn't know that if it digs a little deeper at the lakshin. <laughs> The previous Rebbe was burdened or was very lost in thought and worried about the Jewish people going through such difficult times. And all of a sudden, the person comes along and says, you dig deeper, that's where you find the luxury. As the Jewish people go difficult and more difficult, but if they dig deeper in the difficult times, that's where you see the Jew shining. That's where you see the glowing and the most difficult of challenges. That's where you saw the Jews come to their perfection, stand up and rise to the occasion to who they really were. And therefore, over here, if you look in the words of Rabbi Akiva, what does Rabbi Akiva say? Rabbi Akiva addresses about the fox and walking out of the Holy Temple by saying, quoting the verse of Uriah, Zion will be plowed like a field. What was he telling to them? It hurts, it's painful. Imagine if you would have to listen to the ground while it's being plowed. What would the ground be saying? Why are you turning over my ground? Why are you stabbing me and sticking me and toiling me? But what do we know? That the only way you're going to get something to grow is if it's plowed. Because if you put seedlings on the top flat surface, it's not going to do a thing. And the only way it's going to work is if you plow it. And so too, Rabbi Akiva was telling the Jewish people, was telling the sages at his time, where did the Jews get their strength to be able to stand through these exiles and these challenges? By digging deep, by plowing the ground, by finding what's not on the surface, what's digging beneath the surface. But where did Rabbi Akiva get this from? Where did Rabbi Akiva have the strength to be able to understand and recognize 
to see the godliness, to see the holiness in everything. Maybe it is the bad that's stopping him. Maybe it is evil for what it is. How did he know that there was something godly in it? So besides, we know, as we mentioned before, Rabbi Akiva was a person that automatically saw the good even in his own personal life when his donkey was eaten and he was kicked out of the home of town. He always saw the good in his life. But over here, Rabbi Akiva saw this from the very fact that commentary the Marsha says. He saw this from the very fact that a, a fox was walking out of the Holy Temple. That's why if you notice in the story, after he saw the fox and come out of Temple Mount, he said, ah, now I know that the prophecy is true. Why? Because if God really wanted to destroy the Holy Temple and make it a place for everybody and give it, take it away from the Jews, what was the first thing that the Romans wanted to do to the Holy Temple? They actually wanted to build on it their great temples, their church. They said, what better place? And what did Rabbi Akiva see? It was not used for a place for the Romans to build their capital on it. But instead, it's a place that's desolate. Foxen are roaming there. Foxen, but not the non-Jews. Foxen, but not the Romans. Foxen, but no other building. He recognizes and says, look, God didn't give up hope on the Jewish people. He's just waiting for us to plow it, to dig deeper, to find the strength to be able to build the Holy Temple on it. Take even a step further. We today see it even more than anybody else. Look at the past, the words of the Marsha's prophecy that he's saying here. Look at the words of Rabbi Akiva. Ever since the destruction of the Holy Temple, the land of Israel, until 1948, was in the hands of multiple governments, multiple religions, whether it was the Christians, the Romans, the Muslims, the Bezanites, the Turks, the British. The Jewish people, when they came in 1948 to the land of Israel, it was exactly the way they left it 2,000 years ago. There was no development in it. There was no agriculture. The place was deserted. People lived there for 2,000 years in the same tents and shacks that they lived for 2,000 years. They did nothing to develop the country. The Muslims had it for almost 400 years. They haven't produced a vegetable while they were there. In their other countries, they were producing. But the land of Israel was sad, idle for all those years. In the last 70 years, what Israel now became a superpower, especially in arms, in agriculture. You go into the supermarket, you buy peppers, carrots, oranges. Where are they coming from? The longest shelf life of things that come from Israel. Something that never happened. What was God saying? I'm leaving the land for you. I'm holding it for you. Yes, they are going to be, they're going to be placeholders until the Jewish people come and get it. But will they be successful with it? Will they be able to do anything with it? No. So when Rabbi Akiva saw the foxen come out of it, what did Rabbi Akiva see? He said, foxen are coming out of it? But who is God holding it for? For the Jewish people. And then we see the more so. Why does the sages, why does he enumerate the names of the sages? In contrast to Rabbi Akiva, because the, over here the Rebbe tells us we understand where Rabbi Akiva got this optimism from. How is Rabbi Akiva the ultimate optimist who saw the most desecration happen in his lifetime? He saw disaster, atrocity, one after the next, and he was still able to be optimistic. He was the ultimate optimist against the pessimists of the other sages. Because he says, look, look at the other rabbis that were with him. The other rabbis that were with him were great people. Rabbi Gamaliel, the leader of the Jewish people. Rabbi Elizabeth ben Azariah, who was a Kohen and the leader of the Jewish people. Rabbi Yeshua Balevi from those who sang in the Holy Temple. And then you have Rabbi Akiva. You know the difference between the three, the four, the, the three and him? Those three were born Righteous, holy, great people. They served in the Holy Temple. They were a Kohen. They were a Levite. They were the leaders of the Jewish people. They didn't understand. They never tasted. They never saw the other side. Rabbi Akiva, on the other hand, was a child of converts. Until he was 40 years old, he never even studied Torah. Rabbi Akiva looks at them and says, I know what a struggle means. 
I know what it means to have a difficult life. I know what it means to go through the plowing in order to bring about the seedling. I did it. I lived it. For 40 years of my life, I knew nothing about Judaism. But I plowed, I dug deep, and I found it. My family were from the Romans. They were suffering. They were the ones that made people suffer. I was on the dark side. I know what it's like. And therefore, I can tell you what light is truly and how it really comes about. Rabbi Akiva was a person who looked at the present. He was able to see not only the present, but the future. He was able to understand and see what this time is about, not only what right now is happening, but also what it's going to be like, because he lived through it. And for that reason, there's the redundancy of the sages telling him, Akiva, you have comforted me. Akiva, you have comforted me. Rabbi Akiva was saying, you have comforted me now for the present, where you showed us that the plowing that's happening on the Holy Temple is the beginning of the seeds that are being sown for the ultimate redemption. Akiva, you have comforted us that you've shown us that the ultimate redemption is going to come from this demolition. Over here we see Rabbi Akiva was teaching them by mentioning the words, the plowed field of Zion. He was teaching them that the same way when a person plows a field, it's not there to destroy the field, but it's for the benefit of the field. So too, when we look at a time and an atrocity, a difficulty, a challenge, where it seems like a dark time in our life, look at it as a plowed field. We're digging deep. It's the rotting of the seed so that there can be this beautiful seedling and growth of a tree that comes from it. This is the greatest consolation and comfort you can give to somebody. Therefore, every single one of us, in our own little difficulties and challenges that we go through, in our own little challenges that we have in our life that may hold us back from doing what God wants, and we may ask ourselves, look, I'm trying to do the right thing. Why is God throwing so many monkey wrenches in the way? Why is he throwing so many angles at me? Why is he making it difficult for me? What does Rabbi Akiva remind us? What does Isaiah tell us? This is exactly where your mission is. Where it's most difficult for you, that's where your mission is most dependent. It is only what you decide. How are you going to look at it and how are you going to approach it? Are you going to approach it as the dark side, evil is attacking me? Or are you going to approach it, this is my plowed field. This is the rotting of my seedling so that I can have this beautiful tree come from it. It's up to us how we determine it. Rabbi Akiva is telling us, you have this duplicity, redundancy of comfort, recognizing that even the challenge that you're going through is plowing your field. And also be comforted that there is going to be a beautiful seedling, a beautiful growth, a wonderful tree, the coming of Moshiach coming from it.